Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 478 of the podcast and it is Saturday 29th of February 2020 as I record this. So today I have an interview with Michelle Cobb from the Audio Publishers Association and also Audiophile magazine and we talk about the change in listener behaviour and why 2019 was perhaps the tipping point for audiobooks and podcasting, as well as the different creative types of audio projects that you might consider for your uh, creative writing and audiobook marketing ideas. So that is coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, <laughs> a few things going on. <laughs> First of all, I I have been, thank you to everyone who sent me the Ingram Spark announcement on maintaining catalogue integrity. I love the fact that you all think of me when these things come out. <laughs> I also got the uh, email, so I'll be talking about that. Uh, first. So essentially, uh, yes, yeah, so Ingram sent out maintaining catalogue integrity to uh, users. And basically, they said, Ingram Spark is taking a necessary stand to uphold the integrity of and reduce bias against independently published works. To align with our industry's need for content integrity, we will actively remove print, cat- print content from our catalogue that does harm to buyers and affects reputations of our publishers and retail and library partners. So this is really interesting. And then they go on to describe the criteria that will not be, oh no, they say that may not be accepted going forward from April 27th. Summaries, workbooks, abbreviations, insights or similar type of content without permission from the original author. So some people have said, oh, so we can't do workbooks. And I'm like, well, no, of course we can do workbooks because it says that they don't want workbooks and things without permission from the original author. So that's fine. Books containing blank pages exceeding 10%, journals, scratch pads, other type of content, uh, books that or content that mirror or mimic popular titles, including and without limiting similar covers, cover design, title, author names or similar type of content. Now, I'm sure that you guys have also seen this on the Kindle store. There are, um, for example, there are some authors that I love, uh, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Childs, who write this Pendergast series. And some author has decided that being called Preston W. Child and have very similar books uh, is a good way to get sales, um, which really annoys me, (laughs) to be honest. So stuff like this is, I think, a good crackdown. And Amazon have obviously tried to do some crackdown, but now it's interesting because people are clearly doing lots of print products that fit into the same area. Uh, Also, books that are misleading or likely to cause confusion by the buyer. Books listed at prices not reflective of the book's market value. So clearly there are people putting massive prices on things. And this has been cited before back in the Create Space pace days, there were talk of money laundering through this type of thing where books would be bought for loads of money and that would somehow be money laundering. I never quite worked out that business model, (laughs) like how you would do that, but it's interesting. 
books scanned from original versions where all or parts contain illegible content. I am so glad they're doing that because I know certainly my husband has bought uh, what he thought were academic books that have been just scanned from old books and just appalling. So I don't I don't know if this is just independent authors. This is also traditional publishing. And then number seven, which is why everyone sent this to me, books created using artificial intelligence or automated processes. And so this would, you know, this may include my three German books, for example, where the first draft was created with AI's uh, DeepL.com. Uh, well, it was created using DeepL which uses AI translation. But then I worked with editors and freelancers. And in fact, the audiobook has just been finished of the German edition of Mindset. So I'm about to upload that. So that will be available hopefully by end of March. But coming back to why Ingram are doing this. So I I absolutely understand why they're doing this because essentially they're getting hammered with all of these different books. Now, but what this made me think was, oh my goodness, there are lots of people creating books with AI because they would not be banning it unless this was actually happening. And also it means that they can tell. And this is what I, because I'm obviously friends with lots of people at Ingram. I think they're brilliant. And um, in fact, some just circling back on what they've said, because the Alliance of Independent Authors and also, uh, you know, we asked for a clarification. So Robin Cutler posted on the Ingram Spark blog, recently some questionable or even deceptive content has been uploaded into online platforms, creating confusion in the marketplace. Part of the deception includes blank books with cute covers, books masquerading as non-book products, and summaries representing popular books that pretend to be the original. Uh, Hundreds of versions of public domain content are becoming excessive clutter that prevent us from maintaining the optimum digital book catalogue. So that's you know, I totally agree with all of that. Um, also, uh, given that I I said to the Alliance, who then went back to Ingram, that the first AI-generated textbook was produced by Springer Nature, who are a very well-reputed traditional academic publisher, in April 2019. So, so traditional publishing has already started producing AI-generated textbooks. So this is not just uh, independent authors, but this is also these textbooks presumably are useful. <laughs> so uh, so Robin Cutler again says, basically, this move will only affect bad actors and not genuine authors and publishers. The use of creative AI to make content isn't at all what we're talking about here, says Robin. Really, a more correct term would be mass-produced content that we're looking to weed out. So this is really interesting to me because I think that this is what we're going to be coming up against in the Kindle store. Uh, I think this is happening already and it's going to happen even more. And I don't, I think right now you can tell that it's bad content, but I think in the future you may struggle to tell the difference uh, once the AIs uh, get better. And I'm going to, I've been holding off on some of my AI news because um, there are a few things that I want to put together into one update. So that will be coming soon. But um, essentially, I think (laughs) there will be a point where you can't tell. But um, uh, Ingram says, 
Alliance members and other indies should know in our review process we are very judicious and have no intentions to exclude content such as workbooks, notebooks that are part of an author's original work. However, we will be carefully reviewing content designed to profit off other authors' work. Uh, We know bogus when we see it. So I completely agree with the stance on this. I think this is completely fine. Uh, What it does show is that we're coming into a new phase of um, basically scammers will always scam and uh, mass use of AI generated stuff is going to be part of that in the future. As ever, tools can be used for good or evil (laughs) and we shall continue to use them for good. So thank you to Ingram Spark for being, uh, for Ingram in general, for being very uh, proactive in this area because we do not. I tell you what's also great is they say, uh, basically, that it's excessive clutter that prevent us from maintaining the optimum digital book catalogue. If Amazon also did that move, it would be very interesting because it would be great to get rid of the excessive clutter of scammers, <laughs> as David Gochran has been pointing out for many years. Okay, so that is a big thing uh, that wanted to talk about. The second thing I did want to mention Clive Cussler. Uh, Clive Cussler died this week and uh, I don't, you know, obviously when anyone dies, it's, uh, you know, you have to reflect on it, uh, but he was in his 80s. He had a blooming good life <laughs> and one of my early action adventure writing heroes. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was reading the Hardy Boys and then I moved into Clive Cussler and I love Dirk Pitt. And Dirk Pitt's adventures have certainly influenced the character of Morgan Sierra, who is my action adventure main character in my Arcane series. And I met Clive Cussler at Thriller Fest a few years ago. I've got a picture with him and I remember him on being on a panel and he talked about still having doubts in his writing, even in his 80s, after many, many millions dollars of success and all of the prizes. Um, he also, I remember him. So this is a guy who's in his mid 80s when I see, saw him speak. And uh, he was talking about still looking at new business models. And he said, if Patterson can do it, I can do it and started co-writing. So of course, James Patterson has been co-writing for a long time. And Clive Cussler started doing a lot more co-writing with different authors, expanding his different brands and collaborating a lot more. So I I remember sitting there going, wow, you know, the guy's still reinventing his business model in his 80s. We can all learn from that. So I wanted to to just, you know, give a shout out to Clive and say, who knows, you know, some days, uh, so moving into, I guess, the, my personal update, I, I'm in the 30,000 word area of Map of the Impossible. And some days I'm like, what am I doing? What is the point? Seriously, no one's going to read this. This is so terrible. Why do I bother? Writing is so hard. No, you know, I, I can't impact anyone's life this way. I should go and retrain as a health worker or something useful <laughs> or, you know, whatever. And then and the next day I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. I love this story. This is so great. And I can, uh, you know, people will love this. I want this to be a movie series. People need entertainment, especially if they're quarantined at home. <laughs> with virus. People love story. Uh, So I just go up and down every day right now. I think this is the messy middle of a novel and it is a roller coaster. Some days I literally feel like everything I do is pointless. (laughs) But but also, uh, if anyone else feels this way, there is a book called The Happiness Curve, which suggests that this uh, this time of my life, I'm 45 basically, um, 
middle of March. So I, and I, I, I'm just questioning so many things right now. Uh, one thing I'm not questioning is this podcast because I really do still find it helpful and useful for me as well as you guys. And you guys keep telling me that it's useful. So thank you for that. Uh, it does help me reflect. Also, you keep me accountable and I can tell you that I feel this way. And I know that me telling you I feel this way, some of you listening will go, I feel that way too. And sharing our personal experience still matters. So anyway, circling back to Clive, he wrote action adventure novels. And yet, He's widely loved by so many people and I've seen lots of authors talking about him this week saying, yeah, I love Clive's books. They really influenced me. They took me away from misery when, you know, when I was in my teens, I some, some tough times like we all do. I mean, seriously, teenage years are pretty tough. Uh, but I used to read all those books and just feel like I was escaping into adventure. Um, yeah. Anyway, writing fiction is a worthwhile exercise, people. Also, I have been finishing off my preparations for the SPF Live event and London Book Fair. As I record this on the final day in February, uh, there has been an announcement that Simon and & Schuster and Ingram have pulled out of the book fair. There have also been announcements that, uh, and this is not related to the book fair, but just in general, Amazon, Google, uh, Facebook, you know, lots of big companies just cancelling their international travel plans. So, uh, I it will be very interesting what happens early next week about London Book Fair. Um, by the time the next show goes out, we will know because essentially the book fair will be on. Um, I'm still intending to go, <laughs> but who knows who else will be there? And I am certainly intending to do the uh, elbow bump or the fist bump instead of shaking hands with anyone. And although I would usually welcome hugs from uh, people and patrons, especially I will not be hugging anyone or kissing anyone at the fair. There will be lots of uh, no no European kissing going on. Um, I'm certainly have some at the moment have some meetings with some Europeans, but uh, I'll be avoiding that. Uh, it will be it will be certainly if if it does go ahead, it's going to be very interesting because if all the Americans don't turn up and the Chinese aren't coming and the Italians aren't coming and, uh, you know, Iran and quite a lot of countries not coming or uh, Koreans, normally the Korean and Chinese area is really important at the fair. So very interesting in that manner. You know, to be fair, I think the feeling and my certain feeling around travel right now is uh, that it's about this quarantine thing. So I don't think people are scared of coming to London and getting a virus. I think they're scared of coming to London, someone else getting a virus and there being a lockdown or, for example, flights being cancelled or something like that. So I think we're, we're certainly in a very interesting time. Also, the Bologna Book Fair, um, Children's Book Fair, got cancelled a few weeks ago in Italy. So I think that's really impacting the sort of doubt around whether things will go ahead let's face it, you know, if it doesn't happen, doesn't happen, there'll be another one next year. And this is my feeling. My feeling is, uh, yes, there are many bad things that can happen in the world at any point. And we have to be sensible about how we behave. Uh, yes, I have stocked up a little bit. I am a thriller writer. I understand apocalypse. <laughs> but equally, I'm still going about my usual business. What else? Oh, yes. 
Intent. Oh, yeah. I was going to say I am speaking on multiple streams of income at SPS SPF Live, and I'm going to expand that 40 minute talk into a mini course slash lecture that I'll put out sometime in April because it's really good preparing a, a talk because it makes you revisit a lot of things, and I've realised that there's a lot more stuff I want to put together into a kind of talk. So, uh, but I've only got 40 minutes for that, and what I want to put out is probably a couple of hours long. So uh, like, you know, a little mini training. So that will be out sometime in April. That will be a premium course. But of course, you get 10% off if you become a patron, which I'll talk about in a minute. Also wanted to mention uh, two things that at the moment are confirmed (laughs) for me speaking at. First of all, as long as, as long as there is no viral apocalypse and everything is shut down, in September, I will be speaking at the Slow Business Adventure in Jotunheim National Park in Norway. Seriously, even if you don't want to come to Norway, go look at the um, pictures at slowbusinessadventure.com. I'm really excited about this event. This is an event I would go to even if I wasn't speaking. (laughs) It combines walking and a gorgeous setting on a fjord uh, and a whole load of creative entrepreneurs. And if you're a fan and know of Copyblogger and and Brian Clark, so Brian Clark will be there and also Sonia Simone um, from that era, if you're of that era, uh, I am. (laughs) So slowbusinessadventure.com, that's in September 2020. And also I'm confirmed for the Superstars of Writing Convention in mid-February 2021 in Colorado Springs, USA. Very excited about that. Obviously, Kevin J. Anderson um, and Rebecca Mester, his uh, wife and business partner, run that. Um, David Farland will be there. He's uh, really good on um, story structure. And I'm also very excited about this. Jonathan Mabry, who is one of my favourite authors, like in terms of who is up there for my top favourite fiction authors, Jonathan Mabry is seriously up there. I read every single one of his books. And urban fantasy superstar Jim Butcher. So I feel very excited to be speaking alongside such uh, giants in the industry. Hopefully everything will have calmed down by then. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so just wanted to mention those uh, events. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. You guys really enjoyed Barbara's, Barbara Powell's interview last week as an agent. Um, I think that was clearly a good thing to do. So I'm glad I did that. Adriana says, I simply loved this interview. There's so much about the art, the business and the ferocious attitude we bashful authors should or at least pretend to have. Uh, thank you, Adriana. WM Raybeck loved that interview in caps. (laughs) Barbara Powell is so on the level and your questions spot on. Sue says, fantastic questions. One of the best interviews I've seen with an agent. I especially found the bit on comp titles really helpful. Thank you. Um, Oh, and then thank you for all those people who sent me pictures. So nice to get pictures from all over the world. Uh, Natalie Bright says, walking with the podcast Rural Road in Texas Panhandle. Podcast turned up loud. Gorgeous picture there. Edwin Downward said, here's a view of the dike I walked between segments of your latest episode. Um, Alex Hallett says, listening in my new studio, inking and trying not to be distracted by the garden. Gorgeous sunflowers. And... um, Yummy Book Covers says, enjoying your podcast as I push the pram around Lake Rotorua in Hamilton, New Zealand. Fantastic. 
just one more. Kitty Bischolt says, listening while doing my crunches and dead bugs at the gym. I do dead bugs at the gym as well. And had to stop and say, oh my gosh, I'm trying to use the wrong energy. Finishing versus beginning on two different projects. I just realised as you spoke, that's my problem. Yay! (laughs) Well, see, this is why I keep coming back to the podcast because I feel like and it really helps me to know that you guys feel the same way and it doesn't mean it makes me feel I'm a bit less bonkers because this is one of the issues with being a writer very few people understand how we feel about stuff because let's face it we're all a bit weird (laughs) and our work is weird creative work is weird and it's good when other people who understand what you're going through talk about it because then um, you know you're not strange. And in fact, I have an interesting interview coming up with Austin Cleon, um, author of Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work and Keep Going. And I um, asked him to come on the show to talk about Keep Going because it's something that I feel very much is uh, how I feel after a decade. And um, so anyway, that interview will be coming up in a couple of weeks time with Austin. Okay, so today's show. Actually, today's show is sponsored by my book, Audio for Authors, Audiobooks, Podcasting and Voice Technologies, out this week, um, March, first week of March, March the 6th, 2020. Audio for Authors is out in hopefully all formats, definitely out in ebook, paperback, large print, hardback, and hopefully audio narrated by me. Uh, Fingers crossed for the audio because, um, you know, you never know when it's going to just appear on the stores, but should be available um, on Audible, um, iTunes, and of course, through Findaway everywhere else. So also libraries and um, Scribd and anywhere else you listen. Storytel should be everywhere. Um, if it's not everywhere in the first week of March, it should be there in the subsequent weeks. And basically, it contains everything I know about audio from a decade of experience. Um, and will particularly the things that will be useful for you will be the changing ecosystem of audio, expanding a bit on what Michelle and I talk about today, or expanding quite a lot, actually. Um, also, how to self-publish and market an audiobook in detail, how to narrate yourself if you want to narrate, or how to work with a narrator. In the podcasting chapters, I go into how to write a perfect pitch to be on a podcast and also give some examples. And uh, plus why podcasting is so important for authors and tips for being a good guest as well as the technical side. Um, And also what you want, what you need to know if you want to start your own show. And also about the copyright and intellectual property aspects of all of this. The voice technology section includes speech to text, text to speech, optimising for voice search, and of course, AI and the future of voice. So I am really proud of this book. Uh, I think it is super useful, whether you want to do this stuff yourself or whether you want to work with freelancers. um, I think it is useful. (laughs) So go ahead and buy it. That is Audio for Authors by Joanna Penn. So this type of uh, sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. As ever, as I said, you know, your your support means so much to me and keeps me coming back to the mic. And oh, in fact, I should say, Audio for Authors is dedicated to you guys. 
uh, Audio for Authors is dedicated to my listeners of the Creative Pen podcast and especially my patrons. So um, thank you all so much uh, to everyone who supported the show for years now. You guys are superstars. And thanks to new patrons who are joining every week. Uh, this week, Kevin Dunn, uh, Abby Stoddard and Kaylee Morris. I think I mentioned Kevin last week. Thank you twice, Kevin. (laughs) I really do appreciate the Patreon support. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you find the show useful and want it to continue. And uh, I also sent out the Q&A this week, so you would get that. If you join the show now, you get all the backlist Q&A that you can download and listen to. Uh, And what's nice about the Q&A, in fact, there were quite a few personal questions this week, uh, I share pretty even more honestly than I do on the uh, podcast. So you might find that useful. You can support the show for just a couple of dollars a month at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Michelle Cobb is Executive Director of the Audio Publishers Association, the publisher of Audiophile magazine and a consultant for the audiobook business. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, glad to be here. It's great to have you on the show. So first up, tell us a bit more about you because you're one busy lady and also how you got into the audiobook business. And I guess, why do you love audio so much? Well, it's funny because I actually came from the world of theater and I used to travel around and direct plays and I would be on the road a lot. So I started to become an audiobook listener. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I got connected with a company called LA Theater Works that records plays in front of an audience and then makes them available on audio, kind of as an audiobook. And so I became the resident expert in audiobooks for that company, and I got stolen away by the BBC and have been in the industry now for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, which yeah, and you you do so much, and I met you very briefly at Frankfurt Audio Summit last year. Right. And for me, because I went to Frankfurt Audio Summit, I went to Podcast Movement earlier in the year. Of course, London Book Fair, and it seems like 2019 was a bit of a tipping point for audiobooks and podcasting. So, can you give us some highlights? Like, why is now what? Why is now so exciting? Well, now 50 percent of the population is now listening to audiobooks, and that is in part because of podcasts. It's about 51% of the U.S. population is, is has ever listened to a podcast, so we're kind of in a similar vein. I think what we're finding is that people are spending so much time on electronics and having to do multiple things, that multitasking. So there's a real need and interest in the audio format. Whether it be a podcast or an audiobook, people want to listen while they cook, while they drive, and they also don't want to look at a screen. So we've seen that people really love a print book because it's a very different experience than an ebook. And the same for audio. They love an audiobook because they can put their eyes aside and relax. We spent all day on our phones and computers. And this is a chance to kind of take it down a notch and be with words in the original way that we all knew. Before we could read with our eyes, we read with our ears. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, you talk there about the 50% and that's the US figures. Um, Now, I'm in the UK, but there's listeners in over 200 countries to this show. So do you have any sort of idea on where the rest of the world is? Because the US is often ahead uh, with digital adoption, for sure. So what, what does it look like in the rest of the world? I know that's not entirely your specialty, but just an idea. Well, what's fun for me as executive director of the Audio Publishers Association, I get to travel and talk to people in different countries. And what we're seeing is that audiobooks, which are in English and in the UK and Australia, you know, those places have footholds. And there's European markets like Germany that are very strong in audiobooks. But now we're starting to see Spanish audiobooks pop up all over the globe, not just in Spain, but you've got Colombia and uh, you've got Portuguese in Brazil. It's really becoming a much more adopted format worldwide. And that's in part because retailers are going in, they're working on local language content, and they're getting people interested in the format. Sometimes it's in English, sometimes it's in the the local language, Um, but they're offering a lot of materials and they're encouraging publishers to make the materials available in audio and that helps create this audience. So it is going global and it is going into multiple languages and that's really exciting. Mm. And then because you're from the BBC, originally, you know, you said you worked at BBC in theatre. I feel like there was one way of doing audiobooks, you know, originally. There were, you know, maybe famous actors doing famous actuary things. But now it seems there's a lot more options with what the creative uh, expression of an audiobook is. So what what are some of the, if people don't even listen, like what are the different types of audio that they might listen to that they might, that are quite exciting, I guess? Yeah, it's funny. We use the word audiobook, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's just a book. It could be poetry, it could be plays, it could be an original work. And we're starting to see more and more of that happening, where even book publishers are saying, we're going to go out and commission a work that might be more like an audio drama, or it might be something that's coming out of a podcast, right? Putting all these different pieces of a podcast together. Uh, I think people are just interested in the format itself. And when you create specifically for the audio format, you might have multiple narrators, you might have music, you might have sound effects, and you may never want to put that experience into a print format because it wouldn't work with your eyes. So I think everyone's getting a lot more creative and being willing to experiment. When revenues are good, people will take chances. And that's what I think is a really fun time uh, right now is to see what people are willing to try. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like maybe five, seven years ago, everyone was talking about enhanced ebooks. Do you yes, remember that? And we assumed we assumed that that was video and people were making little apps of books and stuff. But actually, enhanced ebooks are audiobooks with all the sound effects. And what, what do you think about that? Well, th- I think that's interesting. I think, you know, in part, we're starting to see a couple of things. One, the soundscapes put to audiobooks, and also that pairing of the ebook and the audiobooks. So you're kind of reading along as you do when you first start out as a child and a parent is reading to you. So that's a very familiar experience. And yes, 
can we add video and can we jump people off into other websites, all of that? Totally. But I do think the audio experience of wanting to just take in the material and listen is a big part of why people are choosing audio so that they can relax and focus on it. And the Audio Publishers Association has done all these studies, and it took us a really long time to understand that when people say, yes, I like to listen to audiobooks to relax, that that's actually what they were doing. You know, sitting and not doing anything else and really just being with the words. And that's, I think, been a revelation to everybody. So when you know that, you're like, oh, what else can I do to get people to listen longer? <laughs> so <laughs> if you have original material or if you have a soundscape, it's an encouragement to, to really sit and enjoy the audio experience. Yeah. And it's so funny because when you presented those uh, stats at Frankfurt, because I am a sort of knowledge audiobook listener. I listen to nonfiction at 1.5 speed and I just want it in my head. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm that kind of person. Um, I do listen to some fiction audiobooks, but very rarely, whereas my husband is primarily big, long fantasy epic, you know, and yes. he, he will listen in bed like for hours. Um, so what are the other diverse ways where people are listening that might have surprised you and might surprise people listening? Well, I, I don't think there are many surprises. I mean, I think a lot of it is in the car uh, or commuting and a lot of it is exercising. What I think we didn't realize until very recently is that there are a lot of things that happen in the house where people can listen. So cooking comes up more and more and crafting and gardening. But all of those things we kind of expected in some way because it's that multitasking. The real surprise has been how many people say, I'm not doing anything else. I'm just listening. <laughs> <laughs> and what about devices? I mean, you mentioned that um, there. Uh, is it the rise of smartphones that have done this? What about smart speakers? What are you seeing in terms of devices? Smartphones definitely made the difference because suddenly you didn't have to change out anything in the car. You could be on an airplane and not have a, you know, a, a Walkman. That's a lot of material. Your smartphone is with you all the time and can hold hundreds of books. So why would you not, you know, put something on there? And now when we're in line at the grocery store or waiting to pick up our child or at the doctor's office, we can be listening. So it's access a lot of the time. It's just right there and I can choose that experience to kind of fill my time. So that really helped. Smart speakers are definitely something that's on the rise. It's still, you know, hasn't fully penetrated the US market in terms of not everyone having one, but it's a really pleasant experience to be able to walk from room to room. And if you have smart speakers, to be able to carry the same audiobook uh, through the space. And it makes it really easy to do hands free things. Mm, no, I don't love to cook. I don't love to, like, you know, do laundry and fold, but I can do them when I've got the smart speakers. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. I listen while cooking. Um, but you mentioned the Walkman there, which is funny. And it, I guess we're showing our age here that we know what we, we I owned a Walkman. So <laughs> yes. I'm sure many people listening did. But what's interesting is I do get the question. People email me all of time 
they assume that when I say that you can make your own audiobook, they assume I mean a CD. Um, and I, in our local Waterstones here in the UK, they are still selling CDs on the shelf. And I haven't had a CD drive for probably over a decade. So this is kind of crazy to me. But so what's the, what should we even bother going the CD route? Or what is the trend in terms of digital versus physical players? Well, at least in the US, it's about 4% of the units that are sold in CD. And it's about 8% of dollars, because they are a bit more expensive of of product. Uh, And for someone who's traveling on a long trip in the car, it can make a lot of sense to have CDs. So what publishers here have done is they've made CDs manufacture on demand a lot of times so that you can have them in an online store and you can access them that way and you don't have to make thousands of them and have them sitting in a warehouse. Because we all have cars that have CDs and it's only very recently that we're starting to see these in-dash car players and things that make the digital experience a little bit more seamless in the car. It's very easy when you have a CD to just throw it in. And if you have to use your Google Maps at the same time, they're not really interrupting each other. Um, but when you have to plug in your smartphone and you have to you know, put it, kind of connect it to the car, it's not as seamless as an experience. Um, so I think now that we're starting to see CD players go out of cars, that number will continue to go down. But I am surprised at how many people still tell me they love the CD. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you so you said 4% sales, so 96% digital. Yes. And there's a little bit of other in there, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So primarily to me, that says don't bother doing a CD. I mean, it's such a, you know, it's a big deal for an independent author to go down that route um, to do that. So I guess I'm not doing it. But what I, but what I did think, it was funny because when I was, uh, the, I'm narrating a book at the moment and I'm like, this doesn't exist in any physical form. You know, with my books, I just print them and I've got a printed version of my book. I'm like, I made this. But my right. audiobook, I have nothing. But what we've seen in the music industry is the rise of vinyl and lovely album covers again. And so the physical object is really coming back. So do you think that could happen with audiobooks, like um, a sort of revival? of these physical objects? Well, never say never. I mean, vinyl for audiobooks is something that's done as well. And I was in Chile um, this summer and I actually went to a bookstore where they were making cassettes. They were selling cassette players and making their own music cassettes. It wasn't audiobooks, but I, I was like, wait a minute, I have not seen one of these in 10 years. And it was kind of this hipster, you know, oldies thing that they were perpetuating. So who knows? We could see (laughs) CDs again or cassettes again. Um, But do I think, you know, my daughter's generation is going to do anything beyond digital? Probably not. No, and maybe, I mean, I find myself, if I find a nonfiction audiobook that I'm like, right, I really want to remember that, I buy the hardback and keep that version. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, for me, I'll make a notation on my phone. Mm. So it's like, oh, go get this title. Yeah. And it's always going to be digital, partially because I travel so often. So I want to be portable. And it can be hard to even carry a big hardcover book. I'm not much of an ebook reader because I spend so much time on email. So I'm going to get my book reading in via my ears. 
Ah, okay. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I find that all these behaviours are different and we assume that people's behaviour is like ours, but then (laughs) everyone's so different with their behaviour. And I was trying to, like people listening, don't assume that you are the market because it's so broad um, and we just don't know. Like you said, your daughter's generation will be so different. Um, But I did want to ask you, because you mentioned reading along earlier and of course we've had the court case which has been settled but we don't know the details between audible and the big publishers on the captions that they said was generated by ai therefore was not an issue um we you know obviously we don't know what's happened with that court case but there are obviously issues around audio and the text of the audio what are your thoughts on where that might go in terms of captions personally i would really like the captions because when i listen to a non-fiction audiobook I, I they say a word and i don't really know what it is i'd like to see it on the screen um but i realize the rights might be difficult there what what are your thoughts on that well i'm definitely switzerland so um <laughs> i don't really have. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with Mm. captions. And I understand I'm not a print publisher, but I understand that that could definitely be seen as a problematic infringement on rights. Uh, I also understand that, you know, AI generating is doing something different. So I don't think we know where it's going to end. And this is whatever happens with captions. This is certainly not the end. Mm. Um, That's one of the things I know people who narrate audiobooks think about a lot. When is the AI experience going to be good enough to replace the human voice? I can't imagine it being anytime soon because audiobooks are so much about the performance. And you just can't get that from a machine-generated audio. You need that human understanding, those emotions... And you need to really have experienced life in a way that a, a machine certainly cannot. And that's so funny because uh, I think that comes from your theatre background and <laughs> also your the way you listen. So like I said, I listen for information and I listen at 1.5 speed and I'm getting faster and faster. I think I'll be at 2x speed pretty soon because I just want the information. And I have friends who are very similar. It's it's listening because I'm too busy to read and I want the information. So it's not the performance that I want. It's the information. So what I think is that it's going to stratify. I think that what you're talking about is the human narration that we're always going to have. And then I think there'll be another level, which is mass market AI audio, which will be all the stuff that we need in audio that is not available in in audio and isn't really about the performance. You know, I know narrators who do The Economist magazine every week or whatever. You know, is that really about a performance? I mean, to me, I listen to The Economist and and I do think in part it is about the performance because it's interpretation of the data. And I'm an oral learner, so I have to have some differences in tone and inflection that you can't get yet from AI. You know, does it mean that someday we're not going to get there? Probably. Someday there'll be robots doing lots of things for us, Um, (laughs) but we're not there yet. And I, I know for me, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, to take in the information, I want to hear it in a way that has some other shades of interpretation Hmm. and just the the sort of machine read straight facts. It doesn't give me enough levels 
to sort of keep my brain together with the text and really absorb it. Mm. So how how will we expand um, the number of products available in audio? Because I heard again at Frankfurt, the particularly the non-English speaking markets were like, we just don't have the ecosystem. How right. are we going to expand all of this work into Spanish or Portuguese, or there was an, a lady there from Ghana, uh, the, all the African dialects, or, you know, how are we going to do that? Um, it, you know, it, because we've seen it in English, the expansion of what people want. So how are we going to expand? Are we just going to get a lot more human narrators? <laughs> I would think that's definitely step one. And I do think, you know, there is a, a piece of things that are going to happen with AI. My feelings about it you know, are are not, the, that's my personal feeling. I like the human voice better. But do I think that we're not going to have some of this read by machines? No, I, I think we're absolutely going to have a portion of things read by machines. And I do think that what you're talking about, having different types of books and different um, languages, and also just, you know, how important a book is, and what the emotional impact of a book is. Those are all the things that are going to be taken into consideration. Um, but I have yet to be able to listen to an audiobook on a multi and really feel like uh, uh, I'm getting a, a good performance. No, you've just stripped out the performance. It's like a <laughs> stake through my heart and the heart of every narrator who uh, records, you know. Don't you want to listen to the work that's been put in? (laughs) I love it. And I mean, obviously, I narrate my own books now. So I get it from the other perspective because I'm pausing for effect. And then I realize, like, if someone like me is listening, they're not hearing my pause. (laughs) Right. There's there's even an app that gets rid of pauses. I'm sure you've heard of that. I'm, I'm making you very upset, clearly. <laughs> no, it's a, you know, those are choices. I realize things are out there, but I don't have to, you know, make those choices for myself. Oh, no, exactly. And, and I still have yet to hear anything that's machine generated that I can listen to for long enough to feel like it's a real experience. Mm, no, fair enough. Um, then I, I wanted to ask you about revenue models, because this is the other, the other both pro and con with the explosion in audio. So, you know, one thing's really good, the revenues, you know, was it doubled every year for the last seven years? Like, We've had double digit growth mm, each of the last seven years. Which is in- incredible. Uh, so more people are investing in audio. So the cost costs are, I guess, coming down because there's more people in the market. So there's more competition. But also, um, you know, we've got things like the subscription model, which doesn't pay out so much. And again, I know this because I get paid for my narration, you know, that I can, I get all the subscription stuff on Audible. And today, as we speak, I don't know if you've seen this, but PRH um, has pulled their ebooks and audiobooks from the subscription uh, model models. So I, they haven't specified, but I imagine Kindle Unlimited for ebooks and Audible, presumably for for subscription and places like Storytel or um, well, re- other places. I think they wouldn't pull from a credit subscription, but the oh, unlimited the subscription. Yeah. Right. It's the all-you-can-eat subscription. It's yeah. the Netflix model that we as consumers have come to know and love. Mm. And so it doesn't work for every publisher, and that's totally fine. I think a lot of the smaller publishers definitely um, find that's a good place for people to discover their titles. Mm. So each publisher is going to look at their data 
and make their own decisions. And I think that's what's really interesting in this time is that we can have data to make decisions that are best for our company. And that is going to be very different for a, a really big company and a really small company potentially. Mm. So, but what's interesting to me is that with eBooks, we we only came to subscription late and still n- not loads of things. Whereas I feel like for audiobooks, we've almost, you know, uh, digital audio, we've gone for subscription as the default. Um, you know, we I mean? have, we have, but because it's all been built on a credit subscription model, I think that's very different. So you know that you're paying your $15 a month and you get your one book. So that limits your listening as opposed to the all you can eat model where I pay my $15 and I can listen to 15 books. Mm-hmm. Now I probably can't listen to 15 books because it takes me a lot longer to listen Mm. than it does to read with my eyes. But then again, maybe all of you people who are speeding things up are getting through (laughs) a lot more than I am. But it definitely makes a difference. But it is interesting also because at the Audio Summit, Spotify was the keynote and they kind of announced we're going to do podcasts now. We're going to kill it on podcasts. And of course, I have my podcast podcasts on Spotify, but they don't pay anyone you know, I don't get paid for that. You know, and I, my thought was, oh, when are you guys coming for audiobooks? Well, you actually can get some audiobooks on Spotify. Uh, those are paid for. So that's the interesting thing is that podcasts have helped increase the interest in audiobooks. And so far, it hasn't impacted the fact that the market is growing because there were so many more people who could be listening. And you can easily get turned on to audiobooks by listening to podcasts and saying, oh, I want to listen. So then you might go buy some audiobooks. So it's creating an audience and a market, even though the business model is very different, they have an opportunity to exist together and it still is an opportunity for audiobooks to grow more revenue. You know, I've been hearing for probably 15 years now, oh, someday it's, you know, audiobooks are going to be ad supported. Well, nope, turns out no one knew about podcasts back then. So podcasts are ad supported. It's, you know, again, it's a different model, but they can peacefully coexist and it's a slightly different type of product as well. Mm, no, I, I agree. Um, so that kind of brings us into marketing because I definitely think podcasts, well, I buy a lot of audiobooks because of podcasts, listening to people on podcasts. I'm like, oh, I want I want to know more about what they're talking about. I'll go buy that audiobook. And if it's not available in audio, I likely won't even buy it. So there's a lot of books that are not available in audio, which is kind of nuts. So what are, um, but of course you uh, work with, you're the publisher of Audiophile magazine. So publish you know, marketing audiobooks is is a huge deal. What are some of your thoughts around that and how does the magazine fit in? Well, the magazine is really the number one global source for audiobook reviews. It has over 40,000 audiobook reviews on the site. And so if you are looking to reach a targeted audience of audiobook listeners, there's really nowhere else to go that is as well established and has as many reviews. So our consumers are looking to us for the recommendations and we're reviewing over 
2,000 books every year. It's a small portion of what's out there, but it's a way to curate. And in a digital world, we all need that guidance and curation. So what's good, not just because the book is good, but also because the narration is good. The recording is good. And that's what Audiophile helps to do. And we have a, a special for independent authors where they can advertise in the magazine. It goes in the print and digital and also on the website so that they can be reaching directly those consumers who are looking specifically for audiobooks. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's hard to find that because there's just not a lot of people doing audiobook reviews at this point. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing that we're looking at in the US is Chirp um, from BookBub. I don't know if you've heard about Chirp. It's very new. I guess. No, I, I love Chirp. Yeah, they've sold a lot of audiobooks for everyone in, uh, who's participated. So Yeah, so that's a kind of new, and that's not so much review, well, it's not review-based uh, at all. Um, but it's interesting. Uh, is there anything else that you've seen uh, sort of works for audiobook marketing, especially when people's books aren't stocked in bookstores? What I always say is when you have an audiobook, you suddenly have another extension of your intellectual property. So you should be marketing it at the same time as you're marketing the print book, and you should be using the assets that it provides. So you have a narrator, you have, you know, maybe pictures of them in the booth, a sound clip, all of these different things that you can be using to interest people in your title. They might hear a sound clip and go buy it in print, but who cares, right? You're trying to sell as many copies of your book in all the formats. And it's supporting all of that and giving you some assets with which to interest people. But yeah, as far as marketing audiobooks, you know, I obviously I'm biased, but I say go to audiophilemagazine.com and and check out what we can do for you. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. And it is audiophile, F-I-L-E, not P-H. I was like, it must be (laughs) (laughs) P-H-I-L-E. No, it goes all the way back to Robin Witten, who founded it, um, thinking about librarians and, you know, needing a file of reviews. So that's that's why it's audio file. Yeah. <laughs> so then I also wanted to um, uh, to ask you about the Audio Publishers Association. So, I mean, I am a rights holder. I'm an author. I'm a narrator. I'm I'm a marketer. I'm a podcaster. <laughs> And many of my listeners are variations of those things. Um, so what what does the Audio Publishers Association do? Who's it for? What might its benefits be for some of the listeners? Well, obviously, our main focus is the publishers themselves. They're the voting members. Um, but we have, you know, nearly, we have over 900 members, many of whom are voice talent or authors. So when you become part of the association, you have access to the full data that we pull together. You also have access to um, webinars that we do. So if you're a voice talent and you're trying to increase your knowledge about what's happening in the world and what's happening in, you know, your own voice and how to market yourself to publishers, we connect publishers and narrators. So we actually do things called speed dating, where you sit down as a producer or a publisher and you meet different narrators and they can tell you a little bit about themselves. So it's a lot of networking. It's 
research networking events. Um, we also do the Audi Awards and an mm. association conference. So you'll get discounts to all of those. So as an independent author or as a voice talent, it's $165 a year. So it's not a huge expense. And then you're going to get, you know, close to, I think you get $100 off each event. So if you go to two events, you've then, you know, gotten your money back. Um, but it's an opportunity to meet people in the space and to network with whatever side of the business that you're from. Mm. And is it US only? It's not. No, we have members all over the world. Obviously, they're not coming to the cocktail parties on a regular basis, but um, uh, we do have people come in for the awards. We are going to be in New York on March 2nd, and on February 3rd, we'll be announcing the finalists for the awards. And uh, we just signed the contract with the the host, so that'll be announced next week, hopefully. <laughs> Fantastic. And um, so the Audi Awards, uh, most people... The, the most famous one in the indie community is The Martian, <laughs> which <laughs> right. of course was a self-published book that got picked up uh, for an audio uh, with Podium Publishing and then uh, went on and the film and Matt Damon and things like that. Yes. Um, but to to enter the Audis, is it really, is it just the members of the Audio Publishers Association? No, anyone can enter. So it costs $200 if you're a non-member and $100 if you're a member. So again, you, you save the money if you are, um, you know, getting a membership, but anyone can enter. And we have, gosh, about 1400 entries from across the globe. And we will be actually adding a Spanish category in 2021. So that's kind of exciting. <laughs> that is actually, because I think that's, we haven't even started. I think that was the message at Frankfurt. It was like, look, the rest of the world is really just starting on this journey of audio, which is very, very exciting. Um, so, and then circling back to your experience as a listener, your background and what you were talking about earlier around the quality of the recording. So the Audi winners, and of course people can go and see the list of the winners, but what are the things that make for an award-winning audiobook? Well, it's a real understanding of the text and interpretation of the text and drawing you in with their voice. That's what a great audiobook narrator does. They don't take away from what the words as they are written, they're kind of adding a layer onto them and they're really keeping your attention in a way that nothing else can do. Mm. Yeah, it's easier said than done. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not. That's the funny thing is people always think that they can just, as an author like yourself, mm. sit down and record an audiobook. It is a marathon. You need stamina. You need the right mic. You need to wear the right clothes. And I often hear authors who are recording their own work and they've got an understanding of the words, but they don't necessarily have an understanding of performance. And so what they're doing would be very different than what a professional audiobook narrator does. And it takes time. And even, you know, people who are very good actors that you might see in Hollywood films, they don't always make the best audiobook narrator. They really need that direction and that understanding of the experience uh, mm. because it it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. And I do my nonfiction, but my fiction is with professionals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, I, like you say, it has to be some kind of performance. Although what's your thought on the multi, on actors who do voices, voice talent, some of them do lots of different voices and accents and others do a straight read. 
you know, without the variation. Like Neil Gaiman, you know, is a storyteller, not necessarily an actor. Yes. So I think it's about what the book really calls for. And sometimes those you know, super characterizations, they could get too broad. So you really have to have a director, someone to kind of craft how the the sound of the novel should go, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think each book has a different take. And there's some books where I listen to, it's like, ooh, you know, that person didn't do a lot of characters, but they got the tone or the pacing different. So I always knew who the, you know, the perspective was that I was listening to. And it it might not have been a a totally different voice, but they did enough changes to it so that I could understand the shifts. And it was an engaging performance. Mm. So it's kind of all types. And depending on my mood depends on what I might be really interested in listening to. (laughs) Yeah. And I have about, well, seven or eight different audiobooks, as well as 10 or 12 podcasts. So I'm always swapping between things. (laughs) Depending on my mood. (laughs) And I'm the same way. You know, I do a lot of walking. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to go walk for an hour. And all right, well, I've got this, these three podcasts that are 20 minutes. Okay, I can listen to that. Oh, but I'm really into my audio book, which has four (laughs) hours left. So if I walk now, maybe I'll walk further if I listen to the audio book. But it is, it's interesting because it's changing our behavior. I think the like you're saying I mean I I we don't have a car so I walk all like all the time and it is it's like well I could go this route and get an extra 5 minutes <laughs> It's exactly right. And it was funny, even, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when we did a focus group with people and we were listening to them talk about how they were choosing audiobooks based on length. And it was a bunch of publishers standing around going, oh, well, yeah, we think about the length of an audiobook, but we didn't think that people are really making selections based on their commute. But indeed, they are. Yeah. And it's one, you say that on credits, my husband only wants them when they're over 30 hours. (laughs) I hear that all the time. It's like, <laughs> why do science fiction and fantasy books do so well yeah. in audio? Well, because for one credit, you're getting 35 hours. Of 35 hours. That's why we do audiobook box sets now. Like I put three of my novels in an audiobook box set because then it looks right. better for your credit. So there you go. There's an, another behavior change. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this is this has been brilliant. Where can people find the APA and audio file and everything you do online? Sure. Well, the Audio Publishers Association is at audiopub.org. Audiophile Magazine is audiophile, F-I-L-E, magazine.com. And if you're interested in finding out about me, I'm at the very hard to spell, fortebc.com. That's forte, F-O-R-T-E, business consulting, so bc.com. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Michelle. That was great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. So I hope you found the discussion with Michelle interesting and that it might have sparked some enthusiasm to try listening to some different types of audio and also to consider how you can use audio for your books and potentially other creative work. Plus, if you're looking into how you can use audio in your business, consider checking out my new book, Audio for Authors, audiobooks, podcasting and voice technologies. And if you uh, want the audiobook, I narrate it. So that is coming soon. 
In the next show, I'm talking to Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon about the career author journey. So they do have a new book out, um, The Story Levels, um, but we talk a lot more about their initial year, initial first couple of years of going full-time because when we were in New Orleans a few years back, I basically challenged them around going full-time and they both did it. (laughs) So we talk about the challenges Uh, how things have changed in terms of business models, like from what they thought they were going to do to what they have ended up doing, what they've learned and why experiences may be the future for uh, the author, certainly for some non-fiction author businesses. And it is tough when you're starting out. If you want to go full time, this is a tough business. And Zach and Jay keep it real and they share some of their real stories, um, so I know you will find that interesting. So that is coming next week. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.